Okay, welcome to the Second Known Pleasures podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to the period in our musical history that was referred to as the post-punk or new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. Here is Mark to kick off this episode and introduce this week's bands. In many ways, uh, post-punk was genuinely more exciting than punk itself. It seemed like every month you'd change your haircut or your clothes and go herring off after another new band or album that had broken ground you never even knew existed before. Sounds and the way to treat them, the sounds of instruments, vocal styles, drums and bass becoming more than just dull padding. Even dancing might be okay. Once the shackles were gone, nothing was off limits in terms of sound or influences, apart from maybe being too rockist, whatever that meant. As long as it had attitude and took itself pretty bloody seriously, it was fine. While the long overdue return of some serious musicianship within those crumbling walls needed to happen as well. Playing dumb can only be sustained for so long and the music was all the better for it as some of the earlier forerunners started to hone their skills and were joined by a few older hands who'd been holding back in the shadows. Which brings us to today's bands, Susie and the Banshees and The Cure. Conjoined in many ways, aside from Robert Smith's stint as touring Banshee guitarist, the links may not be immediately obvious, but as post-punk pioneers, they stand out for their early albums in particular. Uh, I think we'll start off with the Banshees, guys. I think you'll find that they were conjoined. Well, they can conjoined? they can all be together in one... <laughs> what was that one... word you said? Conjoined, conjoined, kajing. I like that. Ka- ka- I like that. I like oh. the way you say that. <laughs> ka- kajanged. <laughs> they had history. They did. Yeah. The Banshees, I think we all agree, predate The Cure. Yeah, by what, a couple of years? Yeah, but I think I read somewhere that they met at uh, a concert in London. And uh, Robert Smith hadn't started The Cure at ah, okay. that point, so right, he was right. maybe doing something else. Yeah. But Susie was part of the Bromley contingent, the Bromley contingent with Steve yeah. Severin, mm. the bass player <coughs> at the Banshees. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. They followed the Sex Pistols around. They were basically fans. They came from Bromley in London and um, decided that uh, they wanted to do their own thing. Wasn't she a part of that notorious uh, Sex Pistols? Bill Grundy. The Bill Grundy thing? She was on the yeah. set with them. Um, as as was uh, Steve Severin. Is that? Oh, you think so? Yeah. And Jordan. Oh, a really? little midgety sort of girl, if I can and, say oh, that. And Sue Catwoman. <laughs> They're the only ones I know. Well, I think <laughs> the set's getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and do you remember what Susie said? She, she said, I've always wanted to meet you. That's right. <laughs> that's right. This is the Bill Grundy interview. To Bill Grundy, yeah. yeah. So this, this was the, to, to kind of set the scene, this was the interview that just really made the Sex Pistols household names because they swore on, on, on television. live television. Yeah, that's right. After being goaded yeah, yeah, into that's it. Right. Yeah. Well, Steve uh, Jones was the main one, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was at like 5.30pm f- or something, so, you know, it was before the water, Mark Watershed, whatever it's called, <laughs> uh, time. And so, yeah, it was, it was fr- front page news the next day and the Sex Pistols were famous all over the country the morning after this event and it so happened that there were a dozen or so of the Sex Pistols and their friends and, and fans in the studio being interviewed by Bill Grundy, the host of the what, a, kind of a late afternoon talk show. The interesting thing about that was it was Susie, I think, that, that it was the centre of the attention. Yeah. yeah. When she said that and Steve goes, oh, um, oh, yeah, he started yeah. sort of going, yeah, oh, you yeah. dirty old man or something like yeah, that. Yeah, because yeah. Bill Grundy said, uh, I'll see you afterwards or something. Yeah. <laughs> which which is far more offensive than anything that the Sex Pistols said. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose so. I mean, she was a fan of his and, you know. Yeah. It was fractionally creepy because she was probably, what, 17 or 18 and he, yeah. he had a kind of a middle-aged vibe even if he was main, maybe only in his, in his early 30s. He was probably a lot younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, so that was probably her first appearance on television yeah, as yeah. well. Um, 
So, yeah, that's how they got connected to the Sex Pistols in the public consciousness, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. And then, as we all know, because we all know this, um, <laughs> the, the, sure the Banshee's <laughs> first gig was a 15-minute rendition of the Lord's Prayer with Sid Vicious on drums. On drums, really? Yes, at the uh, the 100 Club or one of those yeah, yeah, venues, like punk festival. Yeah. And um, Marco Peroni. Marco, Marco Peroni from, was on guitar. From Adam and the Ant. So the, um, the generously proportioned guitarist of Adam and the Ants on Ant music and all those kind of I films. I think he was more svelte back was, then, Pat. Back then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to give him his due. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the guy from Adam and the Ants and Sid Vicious were in the original Susie and the Banshees lineup, albeit a lineup that only lasted for 20 minutes. Yeah. That's right. And they were asked back, I think, the following week and they didn't have any more songs. <laughs> so um, they somehow or another Some got sort themselves. Of off a tree, him might have been nice. Could have been. Could, could have been good. Communion piece. <laughs> Be that as it may, they had an album called The Scream, which had some chart success when they did get a record. Yeah, that was the interested. amazing thing was mm. that uh, Hong Kong Garden was, was, a big a, hit. was a hit here. It was a big hit in Australia, a big hit in England. Mm. And yeah. it was quite accomplished. Yeah, yeah. The, the track and the album were quite different. In, in the context of what was going on in 1978, there were a lot of bandwagoning punk bands that sounded pretty much the same. And these yeah, guys, yeah. without any kind of background in music, sort of took it somewhere more interesting immediately on the first well, album. Just off, off the top of your head, and you, you guys might be more across this than I am, but can you think of earlier kind of post-punk as, as you think from punk, kind of snarly, you know, Patty, snarly punk singles? You had me thinking about this before you even said it. Ah. And that's how good you are. Because <laughs> I was, no, I thought the same thing. Listening to the guitar work and the bass work mm. on that album, I was thinking, well, hang on, this predates, I'd have to look up my dates. It may predate Public Image, but yeah, it yeah, certainly well, yeah, I was, yeah, I was has I was a connection with the first Public yeah. Image album, I think. And yeah. I'm sure John Lydon, if he wasn't a fan, would have been listening at least to what they were doing because it does point in a different direction mm. than, than anyone else that I can yeah. think of at that time anyway. Well, what I find, and I mean, every generation has its music, and this is our generation's music, but what I find particularly fascinating about this time when I, when I reflect on it now is that like 1978, you know, every, every month is really important. Mm. So Hong Kong Garden, I've, I've done my research, came out in August of 1978, and the album came out, The Scream came out three months later. And, you know, between August and November, probably, you know, half a dozen really interesting and significant, you know, early post-punk albums came out mm. by other bands. And so, yeah, for Hong Kong Garden to come out in August 78, it's it's like, was that the first kind of new wave? I think, I think Public Image, if I could reference that mm. piece that I did on them a while ago, may just yeah, beat yeah. them. On that one, but it was certainly in the mix around the same time. The album came out around about October, so the single came out before that. Yeah, I think yeah. in July, seventy-eight. Yeah. So yeah, but it's an astounding. I mean, as I said in that introduction, it's an astounding period. Every month or whatever, there was another yeah. band doing something slightly different that looked a little bit different to the previous. There seemed to be so much going on within the melting pot of what we yeah. now know yeah. as post-punk, but back then was just new wave or, or punk. Yeah, anything that fit in that under that umbrella was pretty much punk because yeah. it was a little bit different. It was fast and loud and they looked a bit funny. Well, it is it is extraordinary that um, Susie and her mates had, had probably thought of her as being, you know, just like a classic punk, you know, fan, punk chick, whatever, and that their first single is like was like a bona fide kind of pop hit. It, 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 it had kind of moderate chart success even in Australia, which mm. which had zero interest in, no. in that kind of music at the time. Mm. So... 
Yeah, I think it was it was really interesting, and but, and and I think she was a bit concerned that the song was too poppy, and that people, you know, her friends would kind of hate her for having had that success recorded this this pop song mm. I was thinking before about how um, punk music at the time the guitarists concentrated on the top three thicker strings oh, and right? then uh, later I think it's on, pronounced thicker thicker yeah. <laughs> the thick strings <laughs> so there, there were just the bar chords that the guitarists were playing and um, and I think they were doing that but um, Hong Kong Garden it was all, all very high string mm. almost an Asian riff to it wasn't it mm. yeah and uh, maybe she thought well it doesn't sound as tough yeah, as other yeah, punk yeah, songs. Yeah. So, so she probably thought it was a little bit too poppy. However, it, it foresaw the yeah. uh, the other um, guitarists that were to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who, even, even the edge of U2 mm. <laughs> showed everyone how to play the top strings. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and all of a sudden there was a bit more jangliness to the to the songs as opposed to the chunky. Well, well Keith yeah. Levine was, was doing a similar thing with Public Image. Mm. Right, right. I suppose you'd say. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But there are songs on that first album that are punkier than Hong Kong Garden, but there are songs that are more interesting yeah, and sort of yeah. pointing the direction they might go. Yeah. But um, it, it's interesting then that with Join Hands, the second album, that it was – that was almost a regression. I don't know if mm. you'd agree yeah, with yeah, me. Bit, yeah, Back yeah. to more punk-sounding stuff. Like the, the fact that they recorded that Lord's Prayer on there, I don't know why they did. It's abysmal. You don't like it? No, I don't like it at all. It's oh, I don't know you what You prefer the original. The original. I, I prefer to hear it in a church on Sunday. You prefer Sister Janet Mead's version. That's right. I prefer to pray silently <laughs> myself. Sister um, Janet Mead did threaten legal action. It, I, I don't like much on that album. I, I can understand what they were trying to do. It was a bit of a reaction to the previous album's pop success maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's what it seems like. I could be wrong. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think I think... Everything came together a little bit more neatly after that. Though we should mention, Patrick, at this point, that Robert Smith played on the Join Hands tour. That's which correct. I'm sure yes. you'd like to speak about yeah, at length. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. I mean, it was this is that this is hugely significant in terms of the Banshees' history. Mm. Um, in that, the guitarist and the drummer quit at the start of a tour to promote the Join Hands album, the second album, which was 79, uh, and The Cure happened to be supporting the Banshees. And One of their early tours, it must have been. Yeah, yeah, Cure, absolutely, I mean, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. And um, they asked um, Robert Smith if he would mind playing guitar in the Banshees as well as The Cure on that tour. So, so Two he, shows a night. Yeah, it would have been interesting to hear some bootlegs. Well, his take on the first album and, and I guess the second album to whatever degree they were playing both albums on the tour. Yeah, yeah. But um, obviously that couldn't continue. No, and indeed didn't. (laughs) And indeed didn't, no. Mm. Well, wasn't she upset that um, Robert Smith pulled out of the tour like a couple of weeks before a tour? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. So around about that time? What, later or then? No, this was when Robert Smith stopped playing for the Banshees. He rather abruptly pulled out just a week or so before they were due to perform. And uh, that caused a rift between Susie and, and Robert Smith, which lasted for ages. Right, right. So, um, and, and these people can hold a grudge. No, that's yeah. right. It's the Bromley contingent <laughs> the Bromley knew how to hold a grudge. Hold a grudge, that's, that's right. right. Unlike the Crawley contingent. But we'll come to them. Come to those, all right. <laughs> um, I have to say now that Kaleidoscope being the third album was when John McGeoch of Magazine joined the crew. You've, and you've been dying to mention John Because McGeoch. I'm a big magazine fan and we're <laughs> going we're to talk about magazine. Yeah. Can, can I just take a step back and can you tell me in a handful of words how you feel about John McGeoch? Not in a handful of words, okay. no. He, he is 
th the most influential post-punk guitarist. I know Graham will probably have words on that and, and, no, and no, throw no, no, Andy no. Gill as a serious contender. But um, I think in terms of influence and what he did with different bands and the sounds and the way he moved the musical sound forward, I don't think there's anybody else that can touch him in the in the real guitarist sense of the word. I mean, mm. you know, he is a mm. proper guitarist mm. who could play anything but decided to go a completely different direction. And what he did with Magazine doesn't bear much resemblance to what he did with Susie and the Banshees, mm. which shows his versatility and his incredible talent. He only played three albums with the Banshees from memory. But... They could be counted as amongst their, some of their best stuff. Yeah, it's fair to say. Well, it was it, it was interesting that the Giant Hands, which is an, in some ways a kind of a standard early post punk album, um, that within six months the Happy House single came out, which was McGeoch's kind of debut with the band, and it's really amazing. Complete you know, departure and, from the previous. I mean, I don't know, Graham, if you're familiar with uh, with Joint Hands or much of it, but no, well, I it didn't really do much. From my memory of it at the time it came out and it was a bit of a damp squib yeah, yeah. Um, for people into that particular scene at the time. I didn't spend a lot of time with it, I remember that. No, I, I, I didn't listen to it very much, but uh, speaking of Happy House, that was that was where I came back yeah, on board. Yeah. And I said to you guys recently, I, I, I thought that was a real game changer, just hearing what John McGeoch was doing on that. It's a poppy song as well, mm. but but what he did was really interesting within that framework too. Well, poppy within reason. It was kind of gloomy and it was it was basically Susie, you know. It was very Susie. Mm. It was about her, her, her dysfunction. The so. lyrics and uh, so nonetheless, it was saying it was saying we're yeah saying we're happy house and we're happy here. There was a certain bit of irony there. Mm. So you're saying she wasn't happy? I don't think she was really she happy. She wasn't that happy. So she, you're saying she was less happy than she initially appeared? <laughs> than she appeared, yes. I see. I never looked at it that way. But but listening to the guitar, and you must agree with this, Mark, yeah. the, the guitar in Happy House is just amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. But yeah. what he's doing yeah, is, yeah. is interesting and kind of he does – it's not an atonal thing, but he plays some strange things. Mm. And and a bit like what Robert Smith would also do later down the track. Mm. Like you go, well, that's guitar playing, but it's not any kind of guitar playing that I recognise yeah. mm. that I've ever heard before. Yeah. He can obviously do all of these things, but he's doing some really interesting things. And then there were the treatments that he was, was using. And he was, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the very, very early adapters with the flanging, the phasing, mm. the, the echo, yeah. Yeah. all kinds of stuff that people went on to sort of copy. Yeah. And he was yeah. doing, I mean, along with Charlie Birchall, he was also doing interesting things, but... I think John McGeoch added a whole dimension to the Banshees that wasn't there before. And they were better songs, but they sounded better. I mean, that album had a lot of synths and stuff on it too, from memory, and even drum machines, like really early 808 drum machine mm, stuff, yeah. which would have been quite unusual in, mm, uh, what, yeah. is, what was it, uh, 80? 80, yeah. 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 I, mean, mm. I don't know. I, and the punk ethos at the time in the 70s was, was very much you only did things a certain way. Mm. So a lot of the hardcore punk bands wouldn't have touched a drum machine or anything no. like that or, or a synth. Well, so, that's so why would, we're not talking about punk it, bands. It, 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 <laughs> it was, well, I'm just saying it was a credit to them to, yeah. to see these, these new instruments and try them out. I think they broke away from punk really quickly. If, yeah, you, if yeah. you go back to the first album, they basically went, we're probably over it, they're saying to yeah. themselves already. What else can be done with this? And that's what I find personally interesting about all the bands that we're talking about mm. to date. They just went, okay, this is a place to start. That was really interesting for about 18 months. You know, yeah. where, where else can we go with this? If you've got any ideas or any yeah. talent, there might be something else to do. And they did it. Mm. But and so in terms of Kaleidoscope as an album, I guess we, we kind of morphed the conversation from Happy House single to the Kaleidoscope album a little bit. But mm. um, 
So, like, you would have been pretty heavily influenced by the Kaleidoscope album? Well, not really. I didn't know it that well. I knew Happy House, Christine, um, possibly one other, but I kind of lost interest in the Banshees at that point and um, I don't know why. Maybe I was upset that John McGee, I can join them. I can't <laughs> remember. It was a hazy time. There was a lot going on in my life. I think I was sitting my HSC. Actually, no, it wasn't. It. Was it 1980, did you say? Yep. No, no. I kind of I left them behind a little bit there. And um, Were they not kind of tough enough? Were maybe. A bit too puppy. Maybe they were. Maybe they um, – I don't know why. It, it, maybe it was just my group of friends, you know, like back then. Somebody mm. gets an album and you make a copy of it on tape yeah, and you yeah, pass yeah. it around. And if no one does, then you kind of don't hear it. But yeah, I did yeah. know the singles, so I'm not quite yeah, sure yeah. how I knew them. Did, yeah. did they have any chart success in Australia? I don't know whether it was minor. chart success, but I remember seeing yeah. the, the videos, as always, on the Saturday morning programs and Countdown even probably would have. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Well, Christine was a great song and mm. I, I remember liking that stuff, but maybe that was it. It just didn't it didn't have enough of an edge for me at that point. Yeah. Whereas yeah. listening to it again now recently, I, I, I'm thinking this is a great album and it really mm. stands up. Well, something else that struck me was the fact that they went with Nigel Gray to produce it, the guy who'd produced the first two mm. Police albums. So they were, right. they were obviously going for a really clean, clear, crisp sound, like really well-defined sound mm. because that's a defining characteristic of the Police albums, which mm. is a, a natural thing with a three-piece band. Mm. But the the production is just magnificent. On I the, also think on that's that something to do with being interested in the bass being a bit more to the forefront mm, because yeah. the bass stuff on that album is great. There's more yeah, chorus yeah. bass. It's more up in the mix yeah. than the previous albums and obviously the police, the bass was a yeah. huge part of that and whether that was any influence on them using this guy or not, I don't know. Yeah, all of the elements on, <clears throat> on Kaleidoscope, each individual element, like the drums, percussion, guitar, bass, just sound independently really nice for want of a better term. Mm. Mm. And one interesting little story that I came across was that um, when the police were recording Zenyatta Mondata later in the year. Their masterpiece? Their masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> According to some, their masterpiece. I think masterpiece. we can all agree that's not their masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. yes. uh, Stuart Copeland, the drummer from the police, came across a tape from the Kaleidoscope sessions and he reconditioned, so to speak, a drum beat from a song from Kaleidoscope. And that song became... That song. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Well, the song was Trophy. Right. Um, from Kaleidoscope. From from Kaleidoscope, which became Bombs Away, oh, allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. And so Stuart Copeland says that if you open up all the tracks on the Bombs Away multitrack, mm. you'll have the police song, but you'll also have Susie's vocals. Wow. <laughs> now, if you'd from, been able to bring that to this... Show tonight, I would yeah, be yeah, and I'm going to play it for you I'm right now. Play it for you right now. <laughs> like, like, are you saying that uh, he 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 actually had access to the multi-track? Yeah. So he was he He's, was fishing for ideas, basically. Yeah. Maybe. He he, <clears throat> he has gone on record as as saying that he slowed down. I think maybe the drum beat from one of the Kaleidoscope albums changed the EQ, as in like the frequency of some of the sounds, um, and that became a song. That that became. Yeah, a song on Zenyatta Mondata. Wow. As in, you know, the rhythm of it. So they owe, they owe the Banshees a few dollars, I reckon. <laughs> well, Try it, getting that out of Sting. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> going to happen. Yeah. Good yeah. story, Patrick. Hmm. That's, That's all gold. I've got. I'll be That's going That's all you've got. All right. Were, were, were any of the Banshees into tantric sex, like singles? Ah, that's a good question. It's un, unrecorded. <laughs> It, remains it doesn't mean it's not true. No, no, that's true. <laughs> Apparently that, that was why um, Kenny Morris left the band after the second album. 
Really? Mm. Not enough tantric sex or too much? <laughs> I mean, because you can have too much. <laughs> yeah, well, you, they you say that. You go blue in the face, I think, they eventually, if you don't explode. <laughs> they say that. So we're going to talk about the Juju album, We are going to talk about Juju. Um, I'm going to talk about the single Israel. Ah, yes. Because I love that single and it wasn't on Juju. I think it may have been between the two albums. It was included as a bonus with the American copies of Juju. Ah, so you okay. managed to get the single. It's a great song. It has that beautiful, mm, chunky yeah, chorus fantastic. bass sound. Mm. Very, very simple, beautiful guitar. It's a killer song. It still stands up now. Yeah, yeah. And um, they didn't put it on, a, on an album, which is the classic post-punk, post-punk thing. thing yeah. it is. <laughs> Something that I absolutely love about the kind of post-punk ethos. And, I mean, um, Israel came out, I think, three months after... Um, Kaleidoscope. Right. So they they put out Kaleidoscope. You know, it's like surely they're going to milk that for a couple of singles and, you know, six months, nine months later they might put out something else. And they put out Israel three months after. Wow. And it, and it wasn't on, on the Kaleidoscope album. They were prolific. They were prolific. At that stage. But that single is a great precursor to the Juju album because I got back on board in a big way with that album. I, I love that album still. I listened to it again recently and I'm thinking it's still my favourite of their albums. The guitar work on it is is amazing. Mm. He's just doing some sort of Middle Eastern scales and all kinds yeah, of yeah. weird stuff. And it sounds like there's a bit more synth there as well underneath some some of the things that are going on. It's quite dense. Into I don't know who produced it. You'd have to. I think uh, it was Nigel Gregg. Yeah. It was okay. Well, he did a great job, and it's um, it still stands up now. It's it's rightly hailed as a post punk classic. I agree. I, I totally agree. The Juju was uh, the first. Actually, no, I had the Scream on vinyl, but the Juju, I had a cassette that I used to have in my car at the time because I was old enough to drive. And um, <laughs> you were always old enough to drive. <laughs> yes. And um, and yeah, I listened to Juju a lot um, whilst driving around. In, in, Impressing. Did you have a van by any chance? No. Some sort of van with dark tinted windows? Was that you? <laughs> if I did, I would have been playing Australian Crawl or something like that. And luring young teens <laughs> to their certain death. Yeah, that that came, later. That that's came, came later. That's a completely different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and unproven. Yeah. The van coincided with... The, a Banshee's next album. Oh, nice. Nice segue. Mm. He said. <laughs> and it was titled. Um, I would just like to add about the Juju album that there was a song on it called Head Cut. Yes, and a fine would you tune like to it was. talk us through it? Well, as I said, is I there, was. Is that song of any particular significance? Well, it is. It is. because You um, know it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing to say. Um, well, it was a big album amongst myself and uh, a few of my friends, one of them being. From, from school? From school, Curtis, mm. um, an old So you were of like mine. 16, 17? Uh, what year did it come out? 81? Mm. Uh, 16. Yeah. yeah. So um, we had ideas of starting our own band, as you do at that young age, and uh, it fell to me to come up with the name of the band and, and write the lyrics and other stuff like that. And I came up with my head cut. There's something about it just appealed to me. I don't know why. Because we, we were sort of still coming out of punk, but we, we hadn't learnt to play anything particularly well. So we were starting on every front and that name seemed to sort of open up possibilities. It didn't sound like anything. It could be anything. And if you knew what it was, well, then you're into good music because you knew yeah, Juju. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was a, the early incarnation of the band that we went on to form was was called My Head Cut and then just Head Cut, I think, after um, we released that cassette that's still floating around, yep, yep, I believe, yep. full of eight killer originals, <laughs> I think. And, and one dad. And one, uh, <laughs> I mean, was it nine? Was it? You, go, you know better than me. 
But yeah, that that's uh, that's a good point. You're right about that, and I um, mm. and I won't shy away from it. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no should you? I had a band at the time, and we called ourselves Susie and the Banshees. But apparently, <laughs> we couldn't use that name. Su- yeah, Susie and all. the Banshees play the scream. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to get another name. never been able to spell Susie properly. <laughs> That's right. Well, that, was, that was the reason he should have been able to use it. Yeah. He just spelled it S-U-S-I-E. <laughs> yeah, yeah, What's yeah. the problem? Yeah. yeah. And the Banshees had one E. It was and B-A-N-S-H-E-S. Yeah. Just the Banshees. Get it? Yeah, yeah. This is brilliant. This is great. Where were you guys at the time? We could have helped you out. start the name Susie with an X, but you guys managed it. And, okay, after that, we went into... Well, for me, the end of the Banshees is already, it's happened now. Yeah. Because uh, I think, well, John McGill played on that next album, but there were mm. problems, I think. Yeah. He yeah. had descended into madness or alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And wasn't well. I think he yeah. had to leave either halfway through the recording or yeah. just before the tour yeah, started just, to be, yeah, yeah. Ho- be hospitalised. But um, I don't know many tracks off that album, I'll be honest. Patrick, you might be able to... Uh, me in. Yeah, look, my roommate in college. Did you go to college in America? Them, yeah, oh, yeah. My roommate yeah, in college. Yeah, I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he had the album, so I kind of got to know that album better than any of the of the early ones, to, to start with at least. And it was never an album that I particularly warmed to because it's, it, it's a little bit weird, it's a little bit experimental in terms of song structures or even non-song structures, Quite a few songs. I Plus, think. him playing it at four in the morning would have been really annoying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> trying to sleep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to pray, and <laughs> the Lord's prayer. <laughs> Indeed, yes. the original 1976 version. <laughs> um, but uh, what were the singles on it? Uh, Slow dive and melt. Slow dive, I don't mind. Yeah. Melt, I don't know. Yeah, it's melt with an exclamation mark. So, well, is there any other way? With its non-exclamation mark. I always pr- I pronounce it that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've got to say it that, that much louder than mm. all their other song titles. So you're not a fan? Um, no. Well, well, it was a little bit droney. Maybe that was – maybe that's, that, that's how i describe it. But what I, what I liked about it when I listened to it this, this time around fairly recently was how ambitious it was in a musical way. So it was kind of heading in, into interesting – territory in terms of arrangements and stuff. So had a lot of um, strings used in a, in a kind of a scratchy but kind of lush but scratchy, which is kind of hard to hmm. hard to kind of get right. So it didn't sound like they'd brought like the London Symphony Orchestra in on it. It sounded a little bit rougher. But, uh, yeah, so I'd listen to it again. Give it a chance, it you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll take that on board. But but I don't think it's their, it's their best album by, by a long way. Do we agree... On what is? I'd go maybe Kaleidoscope. Graham? Uh, I would go Juju, but can I just say that my favourite single of theirs was a song from 1992, I think, called Kiss Them For Me. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, and that's, uh, I, I just think that's a great song. But once again, that's out of our wheelhouse for this for this podcast. But, um, <laughs> <coughs> but, uh, I love but, that yeah. saying. <laughs> that guy is out of his wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, I'd say Juju. Yeah, I would too. I would give Kaleidoscope close second, mm. but I think Juju. Maybe I'm being, you know, just uh, reminiscing too much on that, that period. But I love that album, and the sound of it remastered that I heard recently was even better. Sensational. Chucking Israel into the mix and calling yeah, yeah. it part of that album as mm. well. Yeah. yeah. Which um, which brings us to the sixth album. Yes. Hyena, yes. Patrick. Yes. Which, which we'll only touch on 
Um, Which as, came out in what year? Eighty-four. Uh, Eighty-four. So I don't. I don't really know, Hyena. What, what, what was the single of that? Was there one? Horses swimming, horses. Oh, horses yes. swimming, something along those the lines. Horses are swimming. Yeah, there was yeah. A, I think I think I remember something a about wet that. Horse involved. And what what's the significance of that album, Patrick? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I'm glad uh, that I'm glad that you asked. You probably didn't realise I was going to be that excited. No, please that, don't. Please don't encourage him. That, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Well, John McGeoch, who kind of um, what's fell, the term? fell off the wagon. Um, yeah. He, on the fell wagon, on the wagon? the wagon? Was he on the wagon or off the wagon? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know which is which. <laughs> so what are you say, you're saying? He was, he was drinking and I feel he stopped. A bit, I feel a bit coming on. Yeah, I think mm. it's been done, but it's still good. He was drinking heavily. He fell yeah, yeah. onto a wagon and hurt himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this is where the horses came in. Yeah, yeah. The okay, horses yeah. dragged him away to so, hospital. <laughs> yeah, but, but he was in mentally bad health and yes. he was drinking a lot at the same time. This was... Around about the time that, which normally isn't that, a problem. That was the weird part. Yeah. Normally, yeah. if you're like in a bad way and you drink a lot, it fixes it. Yeah. But in John yeah, McGeoch's yeah. case, <laughs> yeah. it just exacerbated it his a, problems. <laughs> it was a statistical anomaly. It's even weird, then. but there you are. He was yeah, he was yeah. different from everyone else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, so they then needed to get someone in to to play guitar, and. The cure at the time were in hi- hiatus, more or less. So they got him on board. and As in Robert Smith? Uh, as in Robert Smith, sorry, yeah. yes. And it was at that point <clears throat> that Susie and the Banshees toured Australia. Oh. For, I'm not sure whether it, were, it was for the one and only time, but February 1983, I, I remember seeing them. Did you? See them with, uh, with, with Robert on guitar. Did you see them? Yeah. Wow. Because I was thinking the other day why I never saw them in Australia. I didn't think they ever toured, so that well, just well, shows. Uh, uh, didn't they tour twice? They may not have come to Brisbane. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm not sure. I was I was in Melbourne, so hmm. um, I think I think they toured in '83 and '93. Maybe my, for, for my recent look on the on setlist.com. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Susie and the Banshees definitely would have been a band I would love to have seen. And you I, saw everything basically. You yeah, went and saw everybody. So if they came to Brisbane, hmm. you would have gone. I don't think they came to Brisbane as as was the way back then. A lot of bands just did no. Sydney oh, yes, and Melbourne. Maybe maybe they didn't. Yeah, we were still living in Brisbane. The two of us, Graham and I, were still yeah. living in Brisbane. So I don't think they came, but we can find that out. Well, my abiding memory is of the first notes of the first song, and it was the pounding bass line of of Israel. And I didn't know all of their back catalogue, and I think I maybe kind of knew that song, but but from that moment it was like, wow, this is absolutely brilliant. And so that's the main memory that I've kind of taken away from that gig with me. Apart from Robert Smith playing keyboards in one song with the keyboard didn't have a stand, he was playing it on the ground on his knees, which which I thought was kind of an interesting. How was he playing John McGeoch's guitar line? Faithful renditions. I didn't I didn't know the back catalogue well enough to compare the legion of guitarists the band had had unfortunately, right, fair enough. which is a shame. But but as I say, that's my kind of main memory of it. And I wanted to kind of double check that it was the first song they played, you know, for, for the purposes of our discussion. So I did have a look at it on the Setlist website mm. for that particular show in Melbourne in 1983. And according to Setlist, they didn't play Israel. Wow. <laughs> you, you were high. So, so You actually didn't even go. Yeah. yeah. You were at home <laughs> no. that night. Well, I was following the John McGeoch path to health at the time. (laughs) Mental health. Drink yourself fitter. I think it was called, yeah. (laughs) Drink yourself a five-volume guide. (laughs) If someone hasn't come up with that as a lifestyle choice, they ought to. Drink yourself fitter. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it, it says it all. So that's yeah. possibly what you were doing. But but it's a shame because I can I can imagine I was there with you. I can feel mm. standing there and the first bass notes of Israel mm. come out and I would have been like, this is great. Yeah, and now yeah, you've yeah. kind of thrown that yeah, into, yeah. into yeah. doubt. And now I'm saying it probably didn't happen. Probably or never else, happened. But could set lists be wrong? I don't know. Are they reputable? Have they ever made a mistake? They do rely on uh, subscribers and and, and the people who are fans who who go on and fill out what they think was the set list. So really there's no proof unless the band provides a set list. Do you think I need to challenge set list? I think you should get on there and say, hold on a minute. Yeah. I was there and I remember this. At least I think I was there. Yeah, yeah. Was it it the Capitol Theatre? Uh, it was the Astor Theatre in St Kilda. It was it was the only gig I ever went to there, and it was usually like I think it's like an Art Deco kind of cinema showing, oh, you know, okay. like Casablanca and stuff. So I'm thinking yeah. that maybe maybe the Capitol Theatre was in Sydney. It mm. still is. Yeah, yeah. I think is it? Isn't it just around yeah. here somewhere? But I'm 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 an agitator. I'm an agitator, and I I frequently contact the Macquarie Dictionary to challenge their definitions. That doesn't surprise me at all. So I think set list. You're next. I I was reading the Lowell Tolhurst autobiography. Yes, yes, recently. What's the title of it, by the way? Cured to imaginary boys is the subtitle. Hmm. I thought he would have gone with Lowell because I mean that's going to sell hugely these days with kids. Or L O L O L. Yeah, L O L O L O L. I just like L O L O L O L O L O L. Sorry, Graham, you were reading. No, that's okay. I was just thinking that there aren't many musicians whose name are Lol. In fact, I don't think there are any. That was the guy from Ten CC's name was Lol Cream. Lol Cream. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, what about Paul? There's not many. Is it was he the drummer that spelt his name P O R L? P O R L. He was. We are talking about the Cure here, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interested. Yeah. We've left the banshees behind. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so let's talk about The Cure, the lads from Crawley. Well, the connection between The Cure and the banshees is well, strong. Tenuous. Yeah. <laughs> Inextricable. Intermittent. Occasional. And irrelevant. No. <laughs> All of the above. Um, yeah, uh, one of my favourite stories from just right at the start of The Cure, and this is in, in, in Lowell Tolhurst's book, is that Lowell met Robert Smith when they were five years old and their parents knew each other a little bit, I think, and mm. they were going to catch the bus to their school, which they were going to the same Catholic school, but, but there weren't that many Catholic schools at the time, and so they had to go to, to the next town or something. And Mrs Tolhurst said, said to Lowell, hold Robert's hand and, and you'll be okay. So the two of them, five-year-old kids, you know, scared to death as they're they're heading off to their first day at school, holding hands, getting on the bus, and you know, four albums later, you know, they were still make, making music together, even though Lowell was an so alcoholic. The, but the, we'll get to that. There was a gap between when they met and those albums, though, right? There was. The first album didn't come out <laughs> when they were six. Well, actually, I don't know. Really, you want to go all the way back to the first album? <laughs> Well, let's talk about that because yeah, yeah. I have a, a recollection that Robert Smith was a Banshees fan and we talked about them supporting the Banshees. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. The guitar work was a big influence on him. I think he really enjoyed the sort of different sounds and possibilities. But Robert Smith was obviously a very accomplished guitarist pre The Cure, it's yep. fair to say, because if you listen to Three Imaginary Boys or Boys Don't Cry, whatever your preferred title mm. of that album is, which we'll explain in a minute. Yep. He's doing some pretty interesting stuff as well. It's not mm. your standard no, no. three-chord stuff. No, and, and, and it's, it's quite kind of like a little bit, what, jazzy at times and a little bit mm. just kind of eccentric at other times. But, but his, his songwriting was, was 
was more traditional. I, I, I heard at one point, and I don't wish to shoehorn Elvis Costello into all of these podcasts. Again. That was bound to happen. <laughs> but um, I heard that he he was trying to emulate that first Elvis Costello album. So, so, so his songs were quite, like Boys Don't Cry, it's quite a traditional pop song. Yeah, thing. yeah. And, and, and probably a deliberate single, I guess. But it wasn't until he, his time with the Banshees that he realised that wasn't the way he wanted to go. No, no. And, of course, the following Cure albums became um, a lot more moody and mm, you know, yeah, a lot yeah. more like the Banshees. Well, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, because you'll be the resident expert Cure person here, the first album had a different bass player than subsequent Cure albums. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. the story that I got was that... Um, that Robert Smith wasn't happy with a lot of the first album. Yeah, yeah. And that he wanted to sound more like the Banshees. Yeah. And what the bass player, whose name escapes me at the Ma- moment. Michael Dempsey. Okay, was playing, was 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 too complex and, and yeah, wanted yeah. simpler, yeah. less stuff, which Simon Gallup you know, the, brought the, to the The kind of classic party. thing with those guys, like you had Michael Dempsey and Lowell Tolhurst and Robert Smith who formed the first version of The Cure, they were all from Crawley, this kind of nondescript outer, 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 outer suburban, southern suburb of London. And they were from this little town and they knew this kid called Simon Gallup, you know, from the same town. They also played music with a guy called Paul Thompson. P-O-R-L. P-O-R-L, Thompson. Yeah, you couldn't forget him. Who ended up joining the band, you know, three or four years later. So, And Simon Gallup replaced Michael Dempsey after the first album. So it was just this extraordinary little kind of group, this kind of cluster of mm. kids who grew up together playing music together. But as you say, after the first album, Robert Smith said that Michael Dempsey wanted the band to turn into XTC Mark II. Oh. And he mm. wanted the band to be more like the Banshees. That's the Mark full II, quote, yes. As you were saying. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that, that, was, that was an interesting kind of counterpoint. And this was around about the time. So the album that was known in the UK as Three Imaginary Boys but was released with extra singles and B-sides and, and so on in the US and in Australia as Boys Don't Cry. That's for simplicity's sake, let's call it Three Imaginary Boys. They recorded that and I think that was around about the time of the Join Hands, Susie and the Banshees album. So they were touring their first album, uh-huh. Three Imaginary Boys, around about the time as the Banshees were touring their second album and that's when Robert Smith got on board for the Banshees as their guitarist. So a single that The Cure recorded straight after Three Imaginary Boys, um, Jumping Someone Else's Train, which wasn't on Three Imaginary Boys, um, Susie sang backing vocals on the B-side. And to hark back to a common theme in our conversations, the Jumping Someone Else's Train came out in like November 79, and it's kind of like a post-punk classic song, and then mm. four months later, 17 Seconds came out. So everybody was pumping stuff out pretty quick. Yeah. No one was mucking around. No, and you, you couldn't get much more different sounding songs than Jumping Someone Else's Train, which is a mm. snappy, poppy, post-punk song, mm. and 17 Seconds, um, if I'm not heading too quickly. Well, the difference between actually. those two albums, well, what The Cure are known for, for, to most people, well, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. In the post-punk period, they were mostly known for gloomy, mm. heavy, heavy mm. stuff, yeah. which we'll talk about later, but 17 Seconds was the first of those albums. <clears throat> I remember... Uh, Friends of mine who loved the first album mm. and, and hated 17 yeah, Seconds yeah. when it came out because it just, you know, they, they, they really went off on, on a tangent. Whereas I heard of Forest mm. and I thought that was one of the best things I'd ever heard. Yeah. Where did your mum stand on the yeah, change? Yeah, yeah. Because she, she had a lot of influence, obviously, yeah. with the Simple Minds situation. Yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah. Now, uh, once again, I, I don't think I don't think mum was, was sold on the Banshees or the Cure. <laughs> 
She was a she was a harsh critic. Yes, yeah, unlike was, you, <laughs> I was a lot more forgiving than yeah, you were. And and once again, the first Cure album, if, if we're going to stay on that for a bit, it had not only Boys Don't Cry, but there was a, a few other songs. I don't know whether you'd call them hooky, but they, they had uh, like even ten fifteen on a Saturday night. Mm. They were up-tempo the, 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 rockers. Yeah, it was up-tempo. It was catchy. Every time I heard that song, it was like, oh, oh, yeah, I, I love I the melody. He did a few moody things. Mm. What was the one where um, the girl screamed at the end? Ah. I can't forget the name of it. Right now. I could never work out whether it was at the end or the beginning because I had it on cassette. <laughs> 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 it was an infinite loop. So yeah. I've left myself wow, um, that's, that's susceptible to legal action there. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, that was an interesting – I mean, it wasn't some pop album. It would fit neatly into post-punk and new mm. wave and anything else that we like. Yeah. But you're right. I remember – I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't say this, but I had surfer friends back then and, and some of their taste in music was questionable, but they liked The Cure and they liked Devo and they liked the kind of accessible stuff. Yeah. So the, they, the, the first Cure album? Yes, huh? but they, they certainly didn't like 17 Seconds yeah, and subsequent yeah. stuff. So I think mm. there was a big, big – difference and a big distance between the first and second album. Mm. Mm. I like them both, but for completely different yeah, reasons. Yeah. And getting back to our original band, it sounds like it was the influence of the Banshees. That was what I was trying to get at. I think I think Robert Smith wanted to have that sound and that more introspective, um, doom-laden, if I can say that, mm. sound uh, that, that he'd heard. And the chorus bass sound, I keep coming back to it, but mm. it's a big, big part of a lot of the things that we're talking about, that fat predominant bass heavy sound that, yeah, that the yeah. Banshees Steve Severin was certainly playing around with and uh, Simon Gallup does a wonderful job of to this day yeah yeah well I mean the, the he's playing on on a forest there aren't too many kind of classic what would come to be known as classic cure bass lines or bass sounds on 17 seconds really like it mm. is a very guitar-y quite synthy and very like it's the the drum sound mm. you know as much as anything else that defines it but the bass line on a forest it's like yeah, that that's that's what you should be focusing on, and mm. that's what he did focus on. Yeah, mm. it's a very simple baseline, but that's that that takes it closer to punk than a lot of other stuff yeah, we're talking yeah. about. He's not doing a great deal. Yeah, it, yeah. it works. It's it's brilliant in what what it yeah, is. Yeah, but that that album would have lost them a lot of fans. I'd say that single aside. Mm. Yeah, pop fans anyway. Yeah, who yeah. produced that album, Patrick? This will be something uh, you remember. Mike Hedges. Ooh, his name pops up. Who Mark Hedges produced? I think he produced Hyena. For That's Susie and there the is a connection with oh, the Banshees, yeah. <clears throat> and this is wonderful. Been, We're bringing it all back around. Yeah, and yeah. he might have been an, an engineer on on a couple of Banshees. I think later he was. Yeah, he was. Well, he was involved in both bands quite significantly from yeah, what, I, yeah. what I saw anyway. The thing that, that that amazes me about Seventeen Seconds because it's always struck me as being such a fully realised kind of almost like a conceptual album mm. and I think of it as being kind of months in the making and, you know, because it just feels there's a there's a kind of a weird singular perfection to it, you know, like it is. It's a concept album. Yeah, almost. yeah, and it does feel very fully realised but they recorded it in five days and mixed it down in two days and I think they were consecutive days. So just imagine you go into the studio on a Thursday and you come out the following Friday week and you've got 17 seconds recorded and mixed down mm. and when you went in you had nothing. And that's just amazing. I just think that, that that's extraordinary. That, that was the era. That, that were the times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and it is just such a simple, almost naive album. I mean, all those keyboard lines, for instance, are all, well, they sound like one-note melodies that... You know, a five-year-old could play, and that was why the keyboard player 
who was a member only briefly because I think he was bored out of his brains mm. playing these these one-note melodies. Mm. But that was perfect for the kind of music they were doing. And I still can't quite work out how that album sounds as unique as it does because each individual element is is nothing so extraordinary. I mean, mm. the drum production, I think, is pretty amazing. But Well, that, the drum production was a bit revolutionary at the time because drums didn't really feature in any of the other stuff that we've talked about, particularly mm. to, to date. No. There were a lot of rototoms and other stuff going on, but the 17 seconds drum sound is big and full of reverb and it's right up in the front of the mix. But there's space mm. in the music to let that happen because there's not a lot else going on. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's where that came from. They needed to do that. Can you imagine having a really clean, dry drum sound for that album? <laughs> it <laughs> wouldn't work. It needs to be kind of foreboding. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it definitely is that. Um, yeah. And they continued that obviously into the next album, which, which funnily enough, the single primary is very similar to a forest in, in sort of. Mm. I loved <coughs> primary. Like when I first saw it, and once again, it was another Saturday morning music show. And I think on the film clip, I could be wrong, but it was Robert Smith and Simon Gallup both playing basses or something. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that rings well. It's something like that. But I remember hearing it and thinking that it was just you know, the, the best song ever. I, I went out and bought Faith almost immediately just on the strength of that song. And that became, to this day, my favourite Cure album. Really? Yeah. See, a cheery chap like you. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I would never pick you as, I would have gone with, you know, the first album with you. I would have said, Graham, he likes to laugh. Yeah. You know, he yeah. looks at life through, you know, rose-tinted glasses. <laughs> yeah. And here he is, he's telling me it's Faith, no. which is a pretty grim I, well, album. Well, I, yeah. You've often said I need faith in my life. So that's, that's, that's why <laughs> yeah. I, well, there's the irony. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've you've said that certain ABBA songs get you down. So, you know, and now you're... There's now something you're, not quite right with Graham. <laughs> now you're bringing faith into it. So, well, what is it about faith that um, that sticks in your mm. mind rather than your craw? I, I, I prefer it to <laughs> pornography, if I can say that. You say that now. <laughs> I didn't get into pornography until much later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Once again, it was, it was just the, the the feeling of it. Like it was a, a bit of a doom and gloom album, but um, the bass. Even the way they affected the drums, I thought was really it was really tastefully done. Mm. And once again, like seventeen seconds, I think it's it, it is the album exists as a, as a unif- unit, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. both albums had very few tracks, didn't they? Like eight tracks. Mm. Yes, yeah, very short. They, uh, yeah, 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 mm. yeah. I thought they both had four on each side, yeah. and that may be something to do with the sound of the, of those both those records, because as we know, the, the less music you have on vinyl, the more space yeah, in the grooves, the, the, yeah. the richer sound and the fatter sound that you'll get from mm. this sort of stuff it gave it a real bottom end, yeah. really chunky bass, great yeah. drum sounds. I don't remember much of the guitar. It's just sort of treated and flanged and mm, stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. But all I remember about it is the bass. Yeah, well, the bass on, on Other Voices, I remember, I think, um, on the Saturday morning show, Donnie Sutherland, Donnie <laughs> Sutherland, God, God bless God bless him. Rest his soul. Uh, he's still alive. Still, well, even so. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, he, he he hasn't been well lately, okay. so you know, we send out our best wishes to him. But um, if you're listening, Donny. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hang in there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing the other voices film clip. So the Cure did a film clip to it, even though it wasn't released as a single, and just hearing that that bass sound for the first time it is an absolutely magnificent bass line and mm. bass sound. Like it's so broad and so kind of chunky. Mm. And so atmospheric and kind of funky and just it it, it just it, it covers so much ground. And that song take take the bass out of it and there's nothing left. Mm. So it it was an extraordinary era and you know 
again, kind of harking on, on, on one of our themes, but the predominance of bass guitar, like the bass was allowed to be a lead instrument at times mm. and the Cure didn't often have it as a lead instrument, but when they did it, it was really working. I think they're also heavily influenced by Joy Division with mm. that bass sound because yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. there's a lineage of bass, you know, playing that flows through all of this stuff and, I mean, Peter Hook from Joy Division was a big Stranglers fan. He was trying yeah. to emulate J.J. Burnell's style. Then he went on to influence a lot of these other guys with this sort of bass being up front, as you say, playing melodies or just being right up there in the mix. And I think the sound of that album in particular, I can hear a lot of Joy Division, not as much as the, the fourth album, but certainly it was mm. heading that way. And I think a lot of the post-punk bands, when Joy Division came out, basically re, re, had to rethink what they were doing. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, certainly Simple Minds did, mm. as we as we talked about the other week, and I think The yeah. Cure would have, if whether they'd admitted or not. Yeah, although funnily enough, <clears> I think that Joy Division supported The Cure. I'd imagine that yeah, they'd they all played they did, yeah. together a bit. I, I, saw that, I read that in the book. Mm. That they... Yeah, yeah. so I'm not sure. I mean, there might have been other gigs when The Cure supported Joy Division because I, I certainly think of Joy Division as predating The Cure. Mm, they would have been running parallel for a while, I suppose, given that Joy Division only had two albums and were, yeah, yeah. were done by 1980. Mm, mm. And the Cure certainly would have been around the yeah, same period. Yeah. Can I just say that I saw The Cure <coughs> in, in 1981? In 1980. Oh. August 15, 1980. I've just got That's this. if you believe set list. Now, this isn't set list. This was no. a... An article that was... Uh, Graham's Journal. <laughs> Captain's Log. Captain's Log. <laughs> yeah. uh, what what the, was the there, tour? There I was at, at what's called 4ZZZ's Joint Effort. They used to have these things called Joint Efforts. I remember those. And uh, this was at Queensland Uni on August 15, 1980, and there was The Cure, Laughing Clowns and Zero, if you mm. remember Zero. I do remember both those bands, yeah. Well, yeah. Laughing Clowns and Zero were Brisbane bands, if you think Ed Cooper mm. was from Brisbane mm. yeah. via the Saints. I was always frustrated about that 1980 tour because I was I was at school in Melbourne at the time and they played at the Prospect Hill Hotel in Kew, which is like just a pub two, three blocks away, and had never heard of them at the time. Plus I was only about 12, so you weren't old I, wasn't going, to get I wasn't going to go to a pub and see a band. But You would have struggled to get in, I'd say, too. I would have, mm. yeah. yeah. You're not as, you weren't as tall as you are now. No, 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 that's true. My, Strapping is the my word. My current gargantuan proportions were, that's were, right. yeah, I was, were still... I, <laughs> I was eighteen then, so you guys are about <laughs> you guys are about fifteen or sixteen. If it was yeah. nineteen eighty, yeah, we were uh, yeah, the yeah. same age. I, I was I was eighteen, so I, I could get into you know, yeah, pubs yeah. by then. Even and even though you didn't drink, that was the the yeah, irony, the, the ultimate irony. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I was going to pubs and seeing bands at that age. Yeah, yeah. But I was but, was tall, but you were not taller. so strapping as you. No, no. There was less but, strapping, but strapping nonetheless. But I was tall enough to yeah. get in and 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 fake you, my way to the bar. You had heft. I well, there, yeah, there was a little heft. And uh, I'd, I'd go and see bands, but I didn't see The Cure on that that tour, and I don't know why. I'd have to actually take issue with Curtis on that. There must be mm. some reason for it. Though we did go yeah. in 1981 to Festival Hall, which is, in Brisbane was a mainstream venue, the main yeah, venue yeah, back yeah. in the day, the equivalent of I mean, yeah. the Homebush yeah. place. Um, why they were playing there, I don't know, but it was sensational, and they were they were touring Faith. That yeah, they were touring yeah, yeah, yeah. and so, it was it was right up there again yeah. with another one of the best gigs I'd seen, and, and it yeah. was just one after the other. I think I even bought a t-shirt. It right. was that good. And this was August 11, 81. 81. Well, oh, I was triple, I was triple booked that evening. Um, busy social life. Uh, it was it was my school annual formal dance. Right. There was a lady involved. Well, I, I I had invited a lady, yes, and there was no way given. I, in retrospect, I 
I find this pretty hard to believe, that it was just like everyone who was in, I was in year 12, everyone in year 12 just went to, to this thing. People talked about it for months in advance and you had like hiring your silly You sure you didn't see this on a television show or something? Did this really happen? <laughs> yeah, it sounds Gotta like Got to go to prom. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the same, the, the very same night as The Cure and the, you know, formal school social thing, the Socceroos were playing a World Cup qualifier <laughs> um, in, Melbourne, in Melbourne. And, wow. and I, you know, I'm a big soccer fan and I was an even bigger you, soccer is fan. Is that right? That's true. I, I didn't know that about just, you. <laughs> just, just for our multitude of listeners, I thought I'd mention that. Okay. Just to elucidate upon, if I'm using the term correctly, the dilemma upon the which I found myself on the horns of. Yes. What, what, which way did you did you <laughs> yes, plunge? What happened? Um, school social won. Ah, see. Yeah. So the go. cure lost and the Socceroos lost. They actually they won. They actually I was going to say actually they actually won ten nil. They were playing Fiji. So wow. that was I mean that was a know, given. They were, they were probably Fiji going to win. weren't the powerhouse they are Fiji today. Fiji weren't the powerhouse. No. Much much as myself, Fiji weren't the powerhouse. They the went power on to today. become right. <laughs> can I can I just say that on my senior formal evening? David Bowie was playing at Lang Park in Brisbane. Oh, wow. And I didn't go to see David Bowie. I, I went to the yeah, my, my just That just tells life. you everything you need to know about you guys. <laughs> the, the, the barest hint of female companionship <laughs> and you'll give away everything. Well, at that time, yes, I yeah. think. I mean, if I know I, you've if changed If I'd had now. a farm, I would, have, I would have given it away. Well, I didn't even go to my school formal because I just didn't want to. There were no yeah. gigs on. There was nothing happening. I just was like, nah. Yeah, yeah. So, and, your, so your story is that you were being a rebel in not going. Probably that's your that's your that's angle. what I'm going with. But that's there was okay. nothing else to do. <laughs> I was be, I was being a rebel by going. I think oh. how so, Graham? I was tearing the system down from within. Oh. Ah, you were that's pissing, so hard pissing <laughs> inside the tent. That's right, as I they was. say these days. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, can I just say that the, the Faith Tour that was a great gig and that cemented my love for the Cure, mm. which brings me to my favourite topic, which is three albums in the band will disappoint you, ah, let you down. Yes. And you know what? Now so a number is, is album. And we're up to. Is that a segue into um, album number four, perchance? Possibly it is hmm. because album number four was titled Pornography hmm. and I have to be blunt and say I really, really hated it. Wow. I, I wanted to like it. I liked Charlotte Sometimes, which was the single between the two albums, but I was a little concerned that maybe they were, you know, stuck in a bit of a, a furrow with what they were doing. And in I'd, terms of mood? Mood and because music. Because the sound was very different. Very, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a denser version of what they'd done before, but I, I still think it was. It just reminded me of Joy Division too much that it just sounded like they had been listening to this re- closer, really intently, and just copied it. And it was, God, I was 16 or 17, it was too depressing for me. You know, <laughs> you know if you can picture well, that. Well, I was 18 and it was just right. It was just, maybe I was on the other side of depression, but I couldn't stand it and it made me basically wash my hands of the cure and yeah, I, I was well, done with them. Wow, that was it. Had enough. Wow. And yeah. things only got worse after that. Yeah, me, yeah. For me, yeah. because um, <laughs> as we will talk about in a moment. But um, mm. yeah, where do you stand on pornography, Graham? <laughs> talk us about it. Depending on how high the pile is. Stay <laughs> um, focused, Graham. I agree. I agree. It was uh, faith is where I left them as well. But unlike you guys, I have um, I quite liked their poppier Subsequent. singles later on. As a matter of fact, I, I thought it was interesting that um, I think it must have been after pornography 
that the producer that they work with all the time, he was wanting them to write hits. And yeah, oh, was, was it the guy who ran the record company? Yeah. Chris Parry. Chris Parry, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah fiction records. Fiction yeah, yeah, Chris Parry said... Um, Who's a New Zealander, which I hadn't yeah, realised. Yeah. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he was, he was a good guy. Like, he, he, he encouraged them throughout. Yeah, yeah, those those early years, you know, them going off into other areas. I think he liked the Faith album, but um, he was saying, you know, you guys have got to write a few hits, and it, that almost became like a challenge. Yeah, yeah for yeah. him, and he wrote, "Let's, let's go to let's bed, go Love Cats, and the Walk, and the Walk, mm. and all three of them were big hits for them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, terrible was, songs. But, still. but let's get back to pornography. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> sorry." We, we've strayed here, but I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah, left but, them at pornography. Yes. Uh, yeah, but I, I left them at pornography. I left them uh, after Faith. I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't that big a fan of pornography. And also at the time, I started listening to bands like Japan and, and, and mm. that. And um, in the early 80s where you were a big fan of someone, but then this new music comes along and you start following that. Mm. Like oh, in, in the late 70s, maybe up to 81 I was an Elvis Costello fan, but I, I found they kept doing that same mm. production, the same instrumentation. I got bored with that. And that's where I went into to bands like The Cure and Simple Minds and that. But um, I, I think this, the same thing happened with The Cure for me, is that uh, I liked Faith. And then there were, there were elements of pornography that I just thought was business as usual for them. Mm. And uh, It and felt really self-indulgent, like beyond... The point that that's, I could put up with. That's one of my least favourite phrases, I have to say. Really? About, about music. Yeah. I do kind of immediately kind of arc up when I hear that because I bristle. I, 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 I bristle. <laughs> I bristle. Uh, I'm not saying you're wrong to use it, but but it's a term that I, I kind of feel like music is either good or bad and a 17-minute song can be fantastic, mm. whereas usually it will be described as self-indulgent. That's that's the kind of d- default position of people who criticise 17-minute songs. Well, okay, like let me clarify the use of the mm. term. I, yeah. I felt it was self-indulgent to continue doing the exact same thing that they'd done on the previous two albums. I think it sounds completely different, so really? I'm really surprised to, to hear you guys say that because, like, it just... It, it I want to say the same, just not as good. It, yeah. There's a lineage there. Yeah, You'd have yeah. to agree that there's a there's definitely a yeah. theme running through it, shall yeah, we say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the absolutely. reviews at the time were certainly uh, yeah. brought that up and so Well, I I thought it was it was a much bigger sound, a heavier sound, a darker sound. It was it was a more difficult album. It isn't my favourite cure album by any means, even though there are there are a couple of songs on it which which, which I think are great. It did suit my state of mind. I actually got the album for my 18th birthday, so I just kind of really position it. Um, and it's, you know, I've always enjoyed the more contemplative, reflective kind of music. So it kind of fitted my kind of sensibilities. Mm. But ha- having said that, you know, I think there are a couple of weak tracks and it's a bit, in retrospect, you know, it's slightly overwrought at mm. times in terms of, I mean, the, the first line of the first verse of the first song is it doesn't matter if we all die. Mm, I think that sets the tone. And in retrospect, as an older, potentially more mature kind of adult, thinking back on someone singing that that kind of line, it's a very adolescent, you know, starting point, and you've kind of got got nowhere else to go <laughs> after. It doesn't matter if we all die, yeah. and we know there's you know thirty nine minutes 40, to go, forty minutes to go, and it's not going to get any cheerier. Yeah. And the very last line is of the last song is, um, I think it's um, I must fight this sickness. Find a cure, which I took as I analysed the lyrics very carefully over the course of the next six months (laughs) 
to mean that that was the end of the band. Ah. Well, in many ways it was. In many ways it was. See, that's what, that's what I would have said. I left them the album before, but there's definitely an end point there for yeah, yeah. what they'd been doing mm. because the next album they took well, a left turn. Yeah. Or a right yeah. turn, or, I don't right, know, or yeah. even a back turn, whichever well, way. Well, it was a weird it. progression because it was it was a couple of years until their next album, but they did those pop singles. And mm. I mean, Let's Go to Bed came out six months after the pornography album. And Oh, really? That yeah. all? Because I, I read somewhere that he took a, Robert Smith took a caravanning holiday to try and dry Clear, out yeah, from, yeah, from his, his alcohol abuse and general. Mm. Depression. Yeah. It was I mean, the, having had it was listen the longest to that four album, days of his life. <laughs> I'm not surprised he was depressed. Yeah. So yeah. you're saying... You hung out with John McGeoch at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> drink yourself better. Well, so Simon Gallup left the band at that point as well right, because, yeah. because it was it was so intense. And I thought at the time when I heard Pornography that it was just about the heaviest album I'd ever heard. I didn't have a hugely kind of broad musical experience. Um, but, yeah, I think even listening to it now, it is just so almost literally like heavy. It mm. kind of drags you down, not even necessarily in a bad way, but just I feel kind of weighted down listening to it. And I I think it's an interesting effect, but it was so bizarre for them to go from that to let's go to bed. And and it was the record company boss said, you know, it was almost like a bit of a lark. Cheer you know, up. Yeah. Try and, yeah. yeah. and Yeah, see if you can do it. Yeah. Well, and, he probably wanted some money mm. as well. He was probably getting a bit tired of these, you know, Critically acclaimed records didn't sell a great deal. Well, getting back to what we were just saying before about bands releasing singles and not having them on albums, mm. that must have driven record company people insane. <laughs> because you can, can you imagine someone doing that today? It's like, this is our hit single. I don't want it on the album. Yeah. There's no way in the world. Yeah. That, that, the that album's coming out in two that. months. But there was a different, be on it. A different yeah. philosophy then because people did buy singles and albums. Whereas now nobody buys anything. So I think it, maybe it's a different yeah, way yeah, of looking at things. I mean, New Order would argue, for example, or Joy Division, that they sold more because you had to buy the single as well as the album. Yeah, you couldn't yeah. just go, well, I'll wait and mm. get it. Yeah. And they, and if you've got enough good songs on the album in addition to the singles, then I guess you're onto a winner, but you yeah, have to yeah. be good. One story I like, and this is so far off the beaten track, but seeing as we're talking <laughs> about it, um, when ACDC recorded High Voltage, like let's call the album High Voltage, you know, it's a good name for an album. Um, and they finished the album, like pressed the album, and then they thought, let's write a song called High Voltage. <laughs> so the album came out and then they didn't have High, Vol- high Voltage on it because <laughs> they'd, they'd recorded a song called High Voltage afterwards. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Classic ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> that is so them. So that them. is so them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, in terms of albums and singles, it's, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a classic thing. Um, and I'm not sure if we should maybe end on this point, but around about that time, between the Pornography album and The Cure's next album, the top by which I think they'd lost you guys and I was I was less of, less of a fan. Although you, were, you were wavering. I was, I was wavering, yeah. But that was after the bristling. That was, yeah. Well, I was I, I used to alternate between the two. It's um, healthy. <laughs> which, which got uncomfortable for my housemates, it has to be said. I have, I have a vision of this. The, uh, marks, the marks I left on the couch. Yes. But, <laughs> but, I um, can't stand Paddy. If he's not wavering, he's bristling. He's bristling. <laughs> Pick one. <laughs> well, he's having a bristling day. Oh, he's bristling today. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yep, stay out of the jacuzzi. But, but um, I had a fairly affluent student, student lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> compared to most of you guys. <laughs> you were often taking esteem. <laughs> That's right. That's right. 
the arts degree that I was doing, you know, was was going to lead in a similar affluent direction as I'm sure you could imagine. <laughs> yeah, uh, between the pornography album and the top album, um, Robert Smith was experimenting with stuff um, musically and he decided that he'd always wanted to do an album with Steve Severin from The Banshees. So he and Steve Severin got together and did an album with the band they called The Glove, Blue Sunshine. Actually, were they, were they any good? Was it any good? Well, I was hoping to spark a riveting discussion between the three of us at that point, but you got nothing. <laughs> no, I was aware that they'd done it, but my interest in both bands had waned to such a degree that really? I wasn't interested so even, in, even the, in the combined efforts wow. of either of them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it's not bad. So, anyway, I'm glad okay. I brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That's all right. I'll cut that out in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. It's gold. Um, well, <coughs> well the, the, the part about you is gold. <laughs> it's such a great story of, of starting a band because you loved a band. I, I love that stuff. I yeah, love hearing yeah. about stories like that where people yeah. didn't have any inkling of how to play an instrument or what to do, but they just went, fuck it. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to do it. And that's what post-punk yeah. to me means. Yeah. 